Amid all the changing words of your generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Today's reading comes from the prophet Malachi, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 16. This is God's word. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. 
So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Do we not have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mandy. Well read. That was a long passage. Good morning. It's really great to see you. My name's Victor, if we haven't met. And many of you will know that up until a few years ago, we had a pet dog called Bay, a beloved family member, beloved by many of you as well. And there are lots of great things about having a pet dog, as many of you will know, but one of the things that we loved was that you could give him your leftovers, you could give him your scraps, and we would never waste food. So we finished dinner, there's some leftover rice and chicken and bok choys, oh, let's just give it to Bay. We've had some delicious lamb cutlets, but these bones are here, left over. Why don't we just toss them to bay? Ah, we've got a loaf of bread. It's nearly finished, but it's just the end pieces left that nobody likes. Why don't we just give them to bay? We like to give our scraps and our leftovers to our pets, don't we? And that's, and that's okay. But we don't give our scraps to our children, do we? We don't give our scraps to our friends. We don't serve them up to distinguished guests. Yet, are there times when we give our scraps to God? Are there times when we give our scraps to God? We tend to focus on ourselves a lot of the time. We're preoccupied with our needs and fixated on our wants and desires. We first make sure we are okay. And what's left of our time, our resources, our lives? Okay, God, you can have this. We give our scraps and our leftovers to God. And this is what God's people Israel also did. And so this is what the prophet Malachi was sent by God to confront and dress. And we'll be in Malachi these two weeks, this week and next week, um, because I had a two-week block, and I was thinking, um, what, what can I do, what short book can I do in two weeks? I nearly did 
nearly thought of doing Obadiah, um, but then I decided in the last minute Malachi, because it's got some really interesting things, and it's a final book of the Old Testament. So, um, yeah, so that's why we're doing it this week and next week. But it's worth asking, back to our question again, why? Why do we give our scraps to God? I wonder, is it because our love for him has grown cold? Has our love grown cold? Are we fearful and more concerned with our futures than we are of what God wants with our lives? Or are we simply presumptuous of God's grace to us? We're enjoying the gifts of grace and life he has given us, but we're not bothered with the giver himself. Has our love for God grown cold? Israel's love for their God had grown cold. And you can almost see why. See, as a nation, they had recently come out of the worst time in their history, exile. After being conquered and destroyed as a nation by superpowers Assyria and Babylon, God had amazingly brought some of them back into their land. And they were even allowed to rebuild their temple, the center, the center of community life and worship. And God had made unbelievable promises of restoration of their nation and people. But to be honest, some years on, life was struggling and floundering. Where was that glory that God had promised? Many Israelites complained. There was a severe economic recession, and spiritual life and temple worship had degenerated into mere religious formality. God's people were struggling. They were starting to doubt God's love for them. They were growing disillusioned and disheartened. Their love for God was growing cold. And this was leading to dysfunctional behaviors, such as giving their scraps and their leftovers to God. And so God, through Malachi, wanted to confront his people about this. But before he gets stuck into it, look at how God starts. He begins by reaffirming his love for them. So that's our first point for this morning. God loves you. God loves you. Have a read from verse 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. The first thing God says to Israel through Malachi is, I have loved you. But Israel responds, but how have you loved us? And it's interesting, as you'll see throughout Malachi's prophecies, it's like this conversation back and forth. God says this, but you ask this back and forth. Right. How have you loved us? 
And as evidence for his love for Israel, God goes back to their history, all the way back to their roots, Esau and Jacob. But it's not the first place I would have expected God to go to explain his love for Israel. But the fact that God goes there is trying to tell us something. You see, without going into detail about the story, which you can read more about in Genesis 25 onwards, both Esau and Jacob were problematic in their own way. Esau and Jacob were the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, the two grandsons of Abraham and Sarah. And while neither of them were necessarily lovable, God had chosen Jacob, the younger son, to be the forefather of his chosen people, Israel. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it, against Esau, but actually both were very controversial in their own way. In fact, God should have hated them both. But he chose to love, bless, and use Jacob. And God eventually changed Jacob's name to Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of the nation Israel. So God is saying to Israel, this is the sort of love I have for you. I love you. Not because of what you've done or what you're like. I have just chosen to love you and make you my people from the very beginning. This is what Christian teachers, theologians call God's electing love. God chooses, God elects to love people unilaterally. God doesn't love Israel because they're lovable or good. (laughs) Far from it. God chooses, God elects to love Israel because he just does. And his love is faithful and everlasting. And I was turning this over my head over this week and I was thinking God's love is not like necessarily a love, like our love for friends or even a spouse because you can choose your friends and most of us, you can choose your spouse, right? You love them for reasons and they love you for reasons as well. But God's love, I wonder, is more like a parent's love for a child, right? Parents don't love their child only because or when their child is good and lovable, etc. Parents love their child unilaterally, don't they? They love them unconditionally. This is how God loves Israel, and this is how God loves us. And his love is faithful and everlasting, which is so good for us and so good for Israel because we are not lovable at all. And so God through Malachi has two big issues that he wants to confront Israel about and I think we need to hear this as well. So second point, you are ungrateful. You are ungrateful. The first issue is Israel's defective sacrifices. Defective sacrifices. Let's read from uh, 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? 
It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Do you see what Malachi is highlighting in Israel? It's the defective animals that they are offering to God as sacrifices at their temple worship. When God established a sacrificial system in the beginning, he wanted and deserves only the best animals without defect. And Leviticus 22.22, it actually says, Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. But what are Israel now offering to God? Blind, lame, and diseased animals. They're bringing to God the worst of their flocks and herds. They're tossing their scraps to God. And to drive home his point, Malachi says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? The rhetorical questions are sharp, aren't they? Even human leaders don't accept your scraps. Why would you then toss them to God? It's humiliating. It's shameful. And as verse 6 says, it's showing contempt for God's name. It's disrespecting God. So what does God think of this sort of attitude? How does God feel about this sort of love and devotion to him? He makes it crystal clear in verses 9 to 14. Let's have a look at verses 10 10 and 14 specifically. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It's unacceptable. God is not pleased. In fact, cursed is the one who has an acceptable animal but keeps it and tosses to God a nasty, blemished animal. You may as well shut the temple and stop doing sacrifices if you're, going to chuck, if you're going to be chucking in defective animals. And do you see why it's so unacceptable, why it's so humiliating to God? Right, the end of verse 14. God is a great king, and his name is to be feared among the nations. God is great, and his name is not to be trashed. That's in verse 11 as well. Right? So by tossing God their scraps, Israel is shaming and disrespecting 
God's name. This is the point. The animals put forward indicate the person's attitude and heart towards God. The sacrifice put forward reveals what that person thinks about God. And God also has a stern warning to Israel's leaders, the priests, in the first nine verses of chapter 2. God holds Israel's leaders responsible for the defective sacrifices, for Israel's ungratefulness. These priests and leaders of Israel had a very high calling and a big responsibility. You see, their heritage was from the tribe of Levi. In Deuteronomy 33, we see the Levites are responsible for teaching and officiating in worship in the temple. So part of the problem was that the Levite priests were not teaching God's law properly. Look at verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways and have shown partiality in matters of the law. Israel's leaders were meant to preserve knowledge and teach God's instruction. But like the rest of Israel, the leaders have also turned away from God. And worse, they cause others to stumble and also turn away. Verse 12 puts on full display the ugly insolence and cockiness of the Israelite. But you profane it, that's God's name, by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and this food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? This is an Israelite who does not respect God. The audacity to sniff contemptuously This is an Israelite who takes God for granted. So the key question is why? Why Israel like this? Why are they ungrateful? Why are they only tossing their scraps to God? Well, the first reason I I think is that they take God for granted, right? They, you get that feeling of arrogance with that repeated accusation of contempt throughout this part of the passage and that bit I just read, the sniffing contemptuously. This is an Israelite who takes God for granted. And the second thing is, I wonder if Israelites are doubting God. They've received God's promises of a glorious return and restoration from Israel, uh, from exile, but now here they were. And life just isn't what they thought it should be. Yes, they'd been liberated from Assyria and Babylon, but life was still pretty lame and also quite a struggle. Did God really say it would be glorious? Does God really have our best interests at heart? 
Is God actually a good God? So instead of giving God their best, maybe it's wiser to keep the best animals from the flock, but give God one of the faulty ones. I'm not sure I can fully trust God, so I'll just give you my leftovers. I need to make sure I'm okay first. Why are Israel ungrateful, tossing God their scraps? They take God for granted, and they, t- and they doubt God. Their love for God has grown cold. And I think we, sadly, can relate. And this can result in any number of dysfunctional and unhealthy behaviours in us. And one example I was thinking about, one of many, was serving and relating to God only out of convenience. We plan our schedules and we plan, live our lives according to our needs and wants, and then we squeeze God in wherever is most convenient. I mean, it could just be as small as my daily Bible reading and prayer time with God. I have my day set out, and then I can cram my time with God there, where I can. But if something pops up and crowds it out, then I guess forget about it go on with my day. I'm sad to say that I often feel like I'm tossing God the scraps of my time and myself. I wonder if you can relate. I shared with, um, with our Thursday small group recently, or maybe a couple of months ago, about my struggle where I have my phone with me during um, when I do my time with God. And, you know, I scroll and I scroll and I scroll and suddenly the time's over. And I have to quickly read my pas- the passage and then skim through a quick prayer, and then go on with my day. And I, and I stopped doing that for a while, but I'm sadly doing that again. And that's just one example of giving God my scraps, giving God our scraps. I wonder if you can relate, and I'm interested to hear if you have any other examples. God loves you, but you are ungrateful. And sadly, it gets worse. Third point, you are unfaithful. You're unfaithful. And this is the second main issue that Malachi is confronting Israel with. Let's read from 2 verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. It's pretty strong words that Malachi uses, isn't it? Profaning the covenant, detestable thing, desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves. All these are the result of Israel being unfaithful. To whom and in what way? Unfaithful to one another and especially unfaithful to God. Did you see at the end of verse 11 the key issue? Israelites were marrying people of a different faith, not the people of God. This is precisely what Israel were forbidden to do as God commanded in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. Why? 
Because God's people are holy and special to him. They're loved and chosen by God to be his treasured possession. And so by entering into a relationship with someone with a different God, Israel is being unfaithful to God. Israel is throwing God's love back in his face. And it's actually quite disturbing when we read on in chapter 2 because these Israelites were already married. Can you believe it? They were leaving their Israelite spouses to pursue these unfaithful relationships. Look at 2 verse 13. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Isn't that devastating? God's people are trashing the marriage vows they made to the wives of their youth and chasing women of other gods and faiths. They're breaking their covenant with their spouse and they're breaking their covenant with God. Unfaithful to each other and unfaithful to God. And again, we need to ask, as always, why? Why are Israel like this? Why are they unfaithful? Life after exile isn't as good as God promised. Is living for God really the good life? Is he even powerful enough to fulfill his promises? Do you see the attraction to turn to other gods is strong. And we are so like that, aren't we? If something or someone is not giving us what we want, our eyes and our hearts start to wander. God loves us, but we are unfaithful. And this language of unfaithfulness and cheating on your spouse is used quite a bit in Scripture. It's because a key image of God's relationship with his people is a marriage relationship, one of the most intimate relationships a human can experience. And that's a picture of God's love for his people, deep and intimate, and so is his commitment and devotion. But the way we act towards God is often like the spouse with the wandering eye. God is completely committed to us and our well-being, but we act like the spouse who happily lives in the house and enjoys the benefits of the marriage while flirting with more exciting liaisons outside and letting our love for God grow cold. It's pretty sad. And so, of course, here is where I need to ask myself and you, church family, the uncomfortable question. Where am I, where are you being unfaithful to God? Where are we looking to and serving other gods like Israel did? To go even deeper as to why we're being unfaithful, where are we doubting God? Doubting God's goodness and doubting that God 
has our best interests at heart. And because the passage directly talks about this, marrying women who worship a foreign god in 2 verse 11, I have to chat about the particular temptation of marrying or dating someone who's who's not a Christian. It's a tricky temptation, and I've experienced that temptation, and I'm sure you have too. But doesn't God value marriage and want me to be married? Why can't I find a suitable Christian person to marry? These are legitimate questions. But putting aside the temptation or relationship, the more revealing and helpful question is, I think, how is my love and relationship with God going? How is my love and relationship with God going? Is my love for God still strong or has it grown cold? What am I doubting about God and his character or plans? I think those are more helpful and important questions. Because God has a deep, committed love for his people. And he wants his people to put him first in their lives and serve him wholeheartedly. God wants faithful people. To help me think through this difficult topic, I spoke to a Christian friend of mine who made and has owned their decision to marry a non-Christian. And caveat, that person's situation is different now because they are married to to the non-Christian person. So 1 Corinthians 7 says to stay married. But to us who are not married, here is what they wanted me to say to us. If you are, stop. Remember your first vows that you made to Christ. That first day on your hands and knees, my heart was laid out for Christ. Here you go. Take it. Fully hand over your heart to Jesus. You are a child of God. Know it better and know it better and deeper. Isn't that beautiful? This friend went to the heart, the center of the issue, our very heart. Where is our heart at? We've already given it to Christ. Remember the vows that we made to Jesus? We made public promises to Jesus, if you're a Christian. And here's a challenge to the church family as a whole. And it's chilling. So this is from my friend. I think what would have helped me when I broke the engagement off the first time was if my brothers and sisters in Christ stuck with me and walked with me during that time. I was weak, vulnerable, and surrounded by a family of unbelievers. And my Christian friends weren't around to gain strength from. I'm not blaming them, but it may have helped me not return to that relationship. Such heartfelt honesty, but such a great challenge and motivation for us, the church family, to step up and be used by God. Right? What part are we all playing 
to ensure we are protecting each other and caring for each other. God loves his people. He loves them. But they are ungrateful and they are unfaithful. Now, it's all very heavy and tough news today, isn't it? It does get better, I promise. Come back next week for the second half of Malachi, when God unveils his amazing solution to an ungrateful and unfaithful people. But let's finish on a gospel high, because it is Reformation Sunday. And in a sense, the message of the Reformation is exactly what we need to hear this morning. We are ungrateful and unfaithful people. Even though God loves us, we don't love God the way we should. And there's nothing we can do about it. No good works or religious acts or attending and serving a church can make up for our failure to love God. And over many, many years, our church forefathers, the medieval church, had somehow forgotten this. They'd forgotten about Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. They'd forgotten that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And so a brave German monk called Martin Luther strode up to All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his 95 theses to the front doors, kicking off the events of the Reformation. And through it, the church rediscovered the liberating truth that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing to do with us. And the church was never the same again. And we stand on their shoulders, enjoying the benefits and blessings of the Reformation. We can know the God who loves us, who didn't toss us his scraps, but gave us his best, his only dear son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our failure to love him. Even though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And all we need to do is to come to Jesus, to trust in his death for our sins and live the new life we have because of his resurrection. And so the solution to our ungratefulness and our unfaithfulness our cheating on God with others, our tossing our scraps to God, is not pull up our socks, do better. It's to stop doing what you're doing and come to Jesus and rekindle our first love, to reignite our love for Jesus. Only then can we grow in gratefulness. Only then can our faithfulness flourish. Only then can our love for God warm up and burn hot again. Let's pray together.